0: Welcome to the WCAPS Five podcast series. WCAPS is an online community dedicated to strengthening the leadership and professional development of women of color, specializing in the fields of peace, security, conflict transformation, and foreign policy. Join us as we unpack their valuable perspectives, learn from their strategies, and grow together. VIVE. Vision. Impact. Voice. Welcome everyone to another VIVE podcast by Debbie Caps, Women of Color for Advancing Peace and Security. My name is Kara Hernandez, and I am the chair of the illicit trafficking working group. And I'm really excited to sit down with my guest today, Kiran Araya. from, she is the Africa Program Campaigner at the Environmental Investigation Agency here in Washington, DC. She creates an advocacy strategies to combat environmental crimes across Africa. Most notably in the Dominican Republic of the Congo, Gambia, Nigeria, Senegal, and Zambia. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Great to be here. So I just wanted to start this conversation to really understand what this means in terms of the work that you do and the issues that you're working on. I think people are really interested right now to talking about the environment and environment, as it, especially as it relates to race and it race to ethnic minorities. I would really love to get an, a, just a really brief overview of your work for those listening and kind of talk about some of the issues that you are working on currently.
1: Absolutely. So as you mentioned, I am the Africa Program Campaigner for the Environmental Investigation Agency, which is a think tank, non-governmental organization based in Washington, D.C. that investigates environmental crimes that occur all over the world and advocate for policy change and systems change based off of the findings of our investigative reports. So I specifically work on the Africa program within the forest campaign, which investigates instances of illegal logging and illicit trafficking of timber, whether that's logging without a permit or a license, logging of endangered, restricted, or banned species of trees, over logging of species. So maybe a company was given permission to log, but is now logging significantly more than what they were permitted. These are actually all significant forest crimes in our work that lead to environmental degradation, desertification, and oftentimes involve political corruption, tax evasion, lack of transparency in the supply chain, and a lot of times uh, dirty supply chains. And we work to expose that. So my work expands across about six countries in West, Central, and Southern Africa. And as a campaigner, I collaborate with partners in those regions, whether that's civil society organizations, youth activists, or government officials on national and regional levels who have a stake in this as well, and as well as media who want to cover our report and show the public in their countries about the illegal crimes that are happening in the environment. And so we have the investigation part of our organization, but my work mainly involves okay, so once these investigations come out, how do we disseminate the results? How do we organize partners together to really get people to care, to get decision makers to care and hopefully shift systems and promote environmental change? And so I manage partnerships for most of Africa, whether that's recruiting new partners, um, working side by side with organizations to develop work plans that are going to increase transparency in forest governance to improve environmental advocacy and as you mentioned i lead on creating an advocacy strategy for the africa program which usually means what we need in our campaign to push um, you know environmental and forest policy forward in positive ways i create you know social media strategies to engage the greater public in the work that we do and really just asking the question how can we amplify the knowledge about environmental crimes that are happening and get you know a public audience to really care about what we're doing and then uh, lastly i also facilitate meetings and workshops with communities so i'm often travel to the continent a lot and really work with our partners on capacity building activities because you know some of the communities that we work with are you know very rural uh, forest communities and uh, we really work with them to see uh, what they want to do with their own advocacy and if there's any knowledge or tools or resources that we can shift over to them to build their own advocacy campaigns for environmental justice. All of that sounds so
0: frustrating and it's also amazing because that's so much to be putting on one person and it just really talks about your breath and your you know capabilities and skill sets. I would really be interested to know from your perspective now that you you know are working from home these past few few months what are some trends that you see upcoming in your work kind of in the short short term or long term? I
1: think there has really started an expansion of what and who an environmental activist or who a foreign policy professional is. And I think as I, I think about this from an environmental perspective, but as you know climate issues and security issues go more and more mainstream, I think it will be a huge responsibility and goal for the movement to engage. People in this, And, you know, I have worked in a variety of sectors, I think you have as well, which reflects in our work in the sense that not all of our partners that we work with are, you know, hardcore environmentalists. You know, we need everybody on board and fighting um, environmental crime and saving our environment. And so I think there is a theme globally of just really being more intentional and strategic in how we message the work that we do. And I think, uh, you know, citizen engagement is rising as a theme as well. And I think people all over the world are becoming you know, more attuned to what is happening politically and more comfortable with investigating on their own, more comfortable with asking questions to decision-makers on why they do the things they do. And I think we will see more of that. I've seen that in my work and I think it'll be very critical for people that are working in our field to you know, extend this type of work and to really invite people who may not define themselves as, you know, environmental advocates into this work. Because I know, you know, in my strategic partnership work, I know not everyone is an environmentalist. Maybe people care about forests, but they're not going to be a forest advocate that they would describe themselves. But they may be ordinary people uh, who don't like the decisions that were made in the dark about the environment of their country or their community, or they're concerned about you know, crimes that occurred where millions of dollars in taxes were evaded that maybe could have been used to fund critical public services, but went towards illicit trafficking. Or some people, they wouldn't say they're environmentalists, but they're really concerned about the rising corruption in countries. And so I think when we craft strategies for advocacy and engaging people in our work, we want to make sure that we are tailoring our messaging to You know, each partner, each community, you know, what would this person or politician or activist or civil society group think is the most important part of the story that we're trying
0: to tell? And we go from there. No, that's so interesting because it brings up so many different topics. I know specifically kind of relating it back to Latin America, which is where I've spent most of my time and doing work. Most interesting enough, only kind of from like a South-South perspective, I, you know, I worked previously for the Costa Rican government. I also worked for a Costa Rican nonprofit and I did see that. I did really see how funding was really geared towards having a partner in the U S getting the bulk of the funding to work with us in Costa Rica, which I always thought was so interesting because I was like, why wouldn't you just give it to us directly? You know, we're doing the work and doing it so forth. And then also goes a little bit to uh, how do you measure things, especially, you know, recently there's been a, a another push to have kind of like a lot of issues with the coca growers in Colombia, but also in different parts of Latin America. And they want to just spray them with chemicals again, even though there's history and there's data saying it doesn't really do anything. It has no impact, but it's immeasurable. And so kind of getting and unpacking these different measurables that the U.S. says, oh, we've sprayed X amount of hectares of coca plants. We, success, we, we've done something on the war on crime. Or the crime, the crime on drugs, war on drugs, I apologize. And it's so interesting to kind of see that because I do think it plays out and it really talks to the larger narrative of how funds are used, what measurables are you using for those funds? Are they actually making an impact? And why can't we just give this money directly to organizations really doing the work in the communities, doing it at, at a local level? I do, I would love to have a conversation with some funders on this to see what their perspectives are. But just kind of to ask you a little bit about the other questions that you were talking about, kind of with security, with international affairs, all of these things. WCAPS, as you know, has a a mission to really redefine what national security is and the landscape of national security. So so the U.S. defines and funds security-related issues that actually is more reflective on threats facing all Americans. I would really like to hear how you would define national security and how you see international and national security kind of coming together through your lens of the work that you do?
1: Yeah, I think that's such an important question. To be honest, that is, I'm not sure. As an environmental advocate, I think of national security as, you know, from that lens, for example. So I know a lot of people from, you know, my communities think that when, you know, we talk about national security, we think of defense, and we think of Homeland Security, we think of weapons of mass destruction, you know, things of that sort. But I do think that we need to expand our definition of national security to better understand how people and environment influence that. So I'm not sure if I have the answer for a new definition, but I know that I would like to see an expanded definition that includes that. And I think a lot of that is based off of the work that I've done. Uh, For example, recently, one of our investigative reports that we had at EIA detailed how armed rebel groups in the Casamance region of Senegal, which has been a region plagued by conflict for decades, you know, were being paid by timber traffickers to access areas where rosewood timber, which is a highly valuable red-collar timber that is sells for hundreds of dollars, thousands of dollars per log in China. The the armed rebel groups are located where this timber is at. And so knowing that uh, timber trafficking, people were saying on the ground was the main source of revenue for this armed group. So I think seeing how armed groups and organized crime are taking advantage of the lack of security in certain regions to exploit the environment um, is a big issue. And I don't, I feel like in, you know, mainstream national security discourse, I don't hear too much about the environment, although I know it's just beginning to be talked about climate change and seeing that as a national security threat. But I think the national security definition really should include how, you know, environmental changes are affecting people, how that's creating insecurity, how, like I said, these groups like rebel groups and uh, organized crime that are, you know, in- increasing instability in these areas? How are they further contributing to environmental insecurity and potentially benefiting from insecure situations where they feel like they have the free reign to exploit communities, to exploit forest? I was actually in northern Nigeria earlier this year before the pandemic and a community was telling me that they knew that illegal logging and illegal cutting was going on in their community at night but they were very scared and they felt hopeless in doing anything because they know that these people were involved with organized crime. They know that there's um, potentially a terrorist connection to the people who are doing the illegal cutting. And so that's actually come across in my work where I've met, you know, different communities actually across Africa who say they know that it's wrong to do illegal logging and they don't support it, but they are really scared to say anything because they know that there could be consequences and To speaking up, and they don't want to be involved. So I think any situation or country where fear keeps people from reporting potential insecurities, and you know, insecurity is being fueled by you know these sorts of crimes going on, and I think where you know in situations where there are not uh, strong safety nets and protection for whistleblowers don't exist. I know there was a recent report by Global Witness saying that. Um, this past year has been actually one of the most dangerous years, um, for environmental defenders across uh, the world, especially in Latin America, because they're you know blowing the whistle on these environmental crimes that are happening, and they're getting killed by it. And so, I think as climate change continues to intensify, and the more it harms communities and economies, and you know continues to be a, more of a destabilizer, I think national security, the conversation, the discourse. Should hopefully expand to seeing environmental insecurity as a true threat. I look forward to seeing that expansion and how we talk about national security and foreign policy. And I look forward to people like me or people like you who are advocacy strategists, um, social scientists, you know, communities who are you know living this out where you know there's a lack of security because of this environmental crime that's going on. And I hope that you know more diverse actors can be involved in the conversation about national security discourse.
0: I think it's so true. I think you do know the answer to be honest. I was listening to you speaking. I was like, you're hitting all these points. You're hitting all of these things that really are able to give such a great holistic approach to national security. I think it's really interesting because we have like this divide in, in security that is really pushing people to either work on hard security only Cybersecurity is like the only other field that I really see putting a lot of like new emphasis on. But environmental security, access to food and water, all of these other things kind of get pushed to the side. I also don't think that some folks not believing in climate change. I don't think that's necessarily helping our case in this administration, at least. But I, I am really looking forward to seeing more actors really speaking up and talking about national security through the work that they do because I do think it's really pertinent. There are so many linkages between them all I the ones that you laid out I really appreciated but I'm just so interested to hear more about you I would love to kind of switch gears a little bit and ask you more about yourself and how you got into this type of work
1: yeah so I knew for a very long time since I was very young that I wanted to work internationally and I wanted to work for sustainable development I I grew up in Sacramento, California, which is a very diverse community. I think at one point, one of the most diverse cities in California. So I always grew up around, um, you know, different cultures. And I was, I feel like I was grateful to be very aware as a child of, you know, things that were happening in different parts of the world because of the community that I grew up in. And so I've been working across different sectors in the U.S. for years, working in food policy, global health in Africa with an emerging diseases project. I've worked in youth engagement and public health policy in California. And believe it or not, all of those experiences led me to where I am today. So specifically, I've been working in the field of, um, you know, anti-environmental crime and illicit trafficking of timber for about a year and a half now. But I've been working in the field of advocacy for more than a decade uh, on and off in the field of environmental justice for almost 10 years. And specifically with the forest connection, I was very interested in forest and environmental governance as a student in a university. And I studied abroad in Cameroon. So definitely take advantage of study abroad experiences for the students out there. And part of my study abroad experience was that I lived for a few weeks in the Congo Basin rainforest, where I got to study a national community forest policy that was set up by the government. And Really look into its effectiveness and how it was being implemented in communities. And although the policy was really working out for this community and they felt very empowered in um, being able to make decisions about what was happening with their forest, what resources they wanted to uh, potentially sell and use as ecosystem services and things of that sort, I noticed that the indigenous people that lived in the outskirts of the forest that were actually responsible for producing a lot of these valuable uh ecosystem services such as you know creating honey and uh you know things of that sort they were not really receiving any benefits of this policy at least in this particular place i was in and to go back to your earlier comment about racism and discrimination i think it absolutely does impact, you know, indigenous people in Africa, they do face discrimination as well as uh, racism for people saying that, you know, just really outdated beliefs about who indigenous people are. And so, and that directly impacts the ways that they have been disenfranchised and the ways in which policies often do not include them. And so I was able to get or earn a a human rights grant from the Weisberg Foundation in 2012 to go back to Cameroon to conduct research in the Congo Basin with indigenous people, specifically this time, and really learn how environmental changes were affecting them, and how poor forest governance negatively impacted their way of life and their traditional culture. And it was a very eye-opening experience and showed me how so often communities that are at the forefront of these resource-rich forests that are making you know, corporations and all these other different actors, very rich, are oftentimes left out of the decision making and are directly harmed from, you know, this poor environmental governance that is going on. And so when this opportunity to work in illicit trafficking of timber came about for me, it made so much sense because I had been, you know, to almost ground zero, basically, of what, you know, of communities that have suffered from environmental crime, um, from illegal logging, specifically in this area where I was working with Indigenous people and, you know, having seen the real negative impacts of illegality in the environmental sector, I wanted to apply the skills I had built, you know, these past few years working across different sectors, my education and environmental policy and advocacy, partnership engagement, capacity building, even social media engagement into this opportunity. So it was really a come home moment for me because I had started off in environmental justice I'd actually spent some time earlier as a student working in or interning in the Lower Ninth Ward in New Orleans, post-Katrina, where I learned so much about environmental injustice, racism, and how that all impacted post-Katrina, New Orleans, um, as well as working on a couple of food justice projects across the country. And so it was really just an opportunity where I could apply all of that knowledge and expertise and skills. That I had built up, even working domestically, into this position that I have now.
0: I think that's so fascinating your your story because I I think for most people, especially growing up, especially if you're young, if you don't have the ability to travel, like my family, we didn't have you know the ability to take these long vacations or or do things like that. I'm I'm from Corpus Christi, Texas, and while I did have a big emphasis on Latin America, which because my family is from Mexico. I think it's really interesting that you're able to use all of these different skills, have this different background to really build up not only obviously your expertise and your ability to do more of these like harder skills in your job, but also all of these softer skills is what people call them that are so much more powerful in the work that you're doing now that I think that we, that that needs to have a much more, a bigger emphasis. And I hope every, especially the younger people out there listening that they really take from that. Because I do think things are changing slowly, much too slow for for my liking, but I do see a certain group of folks really actually looking at, at the lack of diversity, whether that be from people's backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, racial backgrounds, or educational backgrounds, and really trying to think of how can we have a more cohesive, holistic approach to your work, I think is really obviously why people... I try to invest in diversity. I always try to push for equity more than anything, just because I, I think it's really important. And having, I think, the sensitivities from those experiences, from your personal narrative as well, I think really do put you in a place to, to to do the work that you're doing in these different communities abroad. And I just think it's so interesting and fascinating. But I think for, we do have a, you know, WCAPS is interesting in the way that it's formatted because. We have young folks, you know, as young as 16, but we also have a lot of women who are really established and and further further along in their careers. Just to kind of, for women that are kind of early in their career or thinking about a career change, do you have any advice for them? Do you point them to any resources that they might, you know, look to any trainings that you took, you know, books, articles, whatever, whatever it may be? Yeah,
1: definitely. And I think that's a very unique and great aspect of WCAPS that it does include women of all ages. I think just one advice that I have would be, you know, really recommending for people to be intentional and to take every opportunity that uh, they can get to learn and experience something. And I think, uh, you know, internships and jobs and volunteer experiences really help to refine what you want and what you want to do, and it helps you to specify goals. So I guess this is more geared towards students, but I know when I was in college, I was also coming in on you know a full-ride scholarship due to merit, but I was a first-generation, lower-income student. And so I honestly, I applied to like every grant, every scholarship that I could think of. Once I got to college, that would enable me to study abroad and so I think uh, for students, really looking at your study abroad department. I think when I was in college, we had, I think it was just called like a Department of International Experiences or something like that. You know, even if you're not interested in studying abroad, which I really encourage people to do, I think that it's, you know, it really does open doors for you. I think for me, my experience in Cameroon, as I mentioned in my last uh, conversation with you or my last answer to you, that you know, my study abroad experience in Cameroon as a student is still affecting me as a professional and helping me to make these connections that I am now. And so uh, specifically for me, I was really grateful that I had a college that prioritized international experience and they helped pay for my studies. But I also I did apply for a Gilman International Scholarship, which I got that also helped pay for my study abroad experience, which I'm really grateful for. And so I think, yeah, if you have goals, just, you know, doing your own research, but also just reaching out to different departments that can help you, you know, identify different scholarships or grants that you can apply for. And I think every summer that I was in college, I had an internship or a research project or study abroad experience that were fully funded. And that was because I really just reached out to different departments, like the International Experiences Department, Field Experience Department. Uh, And we're was able to find out more about, okay, I know that, you know, I have this internship that I want to do in New Orleans. Like, how can I get someone to support my, you know, living expenses when I'm there? And so I would just say, we, you know, apply to everything that you possibly can, because believe it or not, a lot of things do come through. So I would just say, it's really worth the effort. I know it's hard when you have a full class load and, you know, you're working, I was working in college and then on top of that, you have to, you know, apply to all these grants and scholarships, but it'll be worth it once you get the approval letter, I can guarantee you. And then I think in general, I would say something that I wish I knew earlier was really look at the resumes and biographies, LinkedIn profiles of people who are working in positions that you want to be in and take note, you know, what were their degrees in, what you know programs did they do, what type of organizations did they work for. What positions did they hold over the course of their career that led them to their leadership position they have now? I started doing this in graduate school and honestly wish I had started way earlier in undergraduate. And it's not meant to copy their exact trajectory, but it's just to better understand what tools or degree programs could be helpful to get you to where you want to go. So, for example, if you are thinking about getting a Ph.D., and you look up the backgrounds of the top leaders in your desired field and see that 90% of them don't have PhDs, they actually have MBAs, you may want to reconsider if you still want to commit to a PhD. You know, of course, if you're really passionate about it, you know, you can go ahead and do it. But if you're thinking that, you know, something is going to get you somewhere that may not be necessary, this type of background research is really important. And, I started doing it a bit later and found it to be very helpful. So I would always recommend that. And then I think also not necessarily about the career research or scholarship research, but really just exploring your purpose. And I think affirming yourself as a career professional, as an individual, and as your place in this field is really important for women, especially women of color. And for myself as a Black woman, you know, we experience, you know, unique challenges discrimination and it can be you know you have experiences in this field that can be very discouraging you know i can't lie about that (laughs) and there will be times when you you feel minimized or you feel disrespected or overlooked underappreciated that you can really that these types of experiences can really make you doubt your place in this world if you are really meant to work in foreign affairs or if you're really meant to work in national security So I think really staying connected to your purpose and where you want to go, like you might be in an entry level position now, but you know that you want to be an ambassador one day, just always keep that goal in your mind and just affirm that you can get there daily, like a daily practice of wellness and prioritizing for your self-care. I'm also being connected to people who can affirm your worth. I know people talk about mentorship a lot, which is important, but personally speaking, I was someone that did not. Uh, have a lot of mentors. So I really had to encourage myself (laughs) and also just, of course, rely on, you know, family and friends, people who weren't necessarily in this field, but knew that, you know, oh my gosh, since, you know, Kidon was 16 years old, she wanted to work at the United Nations. And so we, you know, people who are, who know where I'm from and can really affirm my worth and affirm my journey, you know, people that I think value you beyond just you as a professional, which I think is very important, especially somewhere like D.C., where it can all just be about career and profession. And yeah, understanding that you have a purpose that and a worth that is beyond what your career could ever be. And hopefully just keeping in the back of your head always that you are valuable, you have a purpose, and that this career is just one part of the bigger plan that you have for your life.
0: I definitely agree, especially about how much work it is in to be successful how much internal work you have to do for yourself I it is much harder I think like you said as black women it's it, you had certain challenges and then as a Mexican American woman I also had challenges that are very specific to where I grew up the circumstances of you know my parents success as well which is really interesting to kind of see how that plays into you and I think one of the things I always try to tell women and tell people of color is you know, playing small doesn't, doesn't help the world. It doesn't serve you. And it won't serve anybody else. And so really trying not to be afraid of success, I think is really a hard thing is that, you know, you have DC, we always talk about imposter syndrome. And I think that imposter syndrome comes because like, what happens if I do get it? What happens if I do get this opportunity? And I think having, building those skills for yourself is really important. You know, you shouldn't be afraid if you see a job, description and it's like 40% writing and you don't feel like you're a great writer, you can become a great writer. I think being able to really do things for your success only is also something really important. Sitting down and taking a writing course that's only meant to help you, I think is a challenge for a lot of women who are experiencing the burdens of all these other things kind of put up on them. You know, like I said, a lot of times diversity is my second job, quite literally, since I get paid for it as well. But Even when I wasn't paid for it, I always, you know, volunteered my time, volunteered mentorship. And I do think for anybody listening, especially if you're a little bit more advanced in your career, to to also you can reach out to young folks that you see are rising stars that you think you can give guidance to. I know a lot of times people really wait to be asked, but it's so intimidating sometimes to ask somebody to, to be a mentor. I know I've had people come into my life and maybe give me mentorship advice but I've never had a mentor myself I really had to build the things that I've done for myself and I do think it is really difficult it is challenging you know sometimes I worry if I send a resume they're gonna look at the accent mark on my name and chuck it but again maybe I don't want to work there so that's probably a positive but I do think there's so many things that we can be doing and I hope that if you have an issue if you have a question you know please feel free to reach out to Debbie Capps or me personally. And I would love to be able to guide you through this because it is a lifelong practice, self-care and self-love and really building yourself up because, you know, the world's a little harsh out there as as we've all experienced. And I think all of these conversations are hopefully help, you know, a lot of it's work that you do yourself, but hopefully hearing from us helps you in your journey a little bit. But I'm just so thankful that you could join us today. I've been wanting to talk to you for quite some time some quite some time now. I would love to continue this conversation. And I know that we have some things in the works, possibly with a, a webinar coming up to talk about enforcement during COVID. But please, if we go to wcaps.org, you can find out how to join the working group or if you want to just get in contact with me as well. There's a An email uh, to contact us. So again, thank you so much for sharing your your narrative with us and and giving us a really great understanding of the issues surrounding illicit trafficking happening in West Africa, especially around timber. I would love to have more nuanced conversation with you at a later date, but I think this is such a great jumping off point. And thank you for being on the podcast.
1: Thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking to you and I'm really happy that WCAPS has Um, provided an avenue where we can talk about, you know, illicit trafficking. We can talk about diversity in the field. We can talk about environmental racism. You know, there are not too many places that are
0: uh, offering that, especially in, in an international context. So I really appreciate that.